Blog Talk Radio. My name is Raina Starr. It is Saturday, December 12th. I hope you're having a good one. Desperate House Witches is not a GPG or even an R-rated show. So if bad language, bodily function, dirty talk, anything else I might say might offend you, this may not be the show for you, but I kind of think it will be because I'm really excited about today's guest. Desperate House Witches is brought to you by the one, the incredible, wicked one herself, Dorothy Morrison. Check out www.wickedwitchstudios.com. She is currently selling her 2021 Home Ornament Blessing Balls. And you know, I always tell you guys, you got to buy your balls in pairs. That's how it goes. But you don't have to. That's just me. Anyway. So if you need Dorothy's products shipped overseas, please check out theconjureshop.com and check at the bottom of their webpage, and they can help you out. So without further ado, I'm so happy to welcome Christopher Penzak for the hour. Hey, Christopher. Hello. How you doing? I'm good. It's really nice to hear from you. Um, for folks who really don't nice know, to again. <laughs> I know it's been a while. Christopher is the founder of Temple of Witchcraft in New Hampshire, for those folks who have been living under a rock and don't know. Um, (laughs) And somebody I really respect in the community and is an author, a teacher, um, a professor, a brilliant man, a scholar of paganism. What else can I say about you that hasn't been said? Nothing, because everything's already been said. Um, (laughs) But I'm, I'm... so happy to have you back. It's been quite a while. I don't believe I've even spoken to you since the pandemic started. So I was wondering how yeah, I don't you've think been so. doing. And what, yeah, so how have you been doing through it? What have you been doing? How have things changed in your practice and interactions? It's It's been weird, I have to say. Um, you know, it's weird and bad for the reasons and the suffering that's going on in the world, and I hate to see that. But at the same time, yeah. You know, you got to deal with what is, you know, and so um, trying to make the best of the situation and trying to find the blessings in the situation. Like I'm realizing um, I miss people, which I'm an introvert. So sometimes that's a surprise as much as I, I appear to be super social. Um, but at the uh-huh. same time, I'm realizing I don't miss travel. You know, like I like being at the places, but I don't like getting to the places that was getting kind of old. And I travel a lot in New England. I'm like, Oh, wow. Every day now I have at least an hour to two hours when I'm teaching and I can just hop on zoom and hop off and go to bed. <laughs> you know? So I'm like, that's a novel idea, yeah. but I'm also realizing how exhausting um, the online forums are, although it's great on one level. And I do have that time of not having to drive after teaching, you know, it's a different yeah. type of energy and it's hard to read the room and it's hard to read people. And, you know, sometimes you feel like more like you're entertaining than teaching because, you know, you can't get an automatic reaction or it's blank screens or people's videos are off or things like that. So it's it's been weird, but I'm trying to make the best of it. Yeah, but I would think that, you know, as a teacher and somebody who's been doing this a really long time, um, you've got 
a great handle on your subject matter, and I think people are generally coming into it knowing what to expect to a certain degree. So I wouldn't be yeah. – I, I know it's hard when you don't have a reaction from folks. You're kind of like, is anybody listening? But they're listening. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like you can't hear it or yep. see it, but it's act. It's actually the same. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's interesting because I still I don't compromise my classes online to be any different than when they're in person. So if I do, I do a yeah. lot of meditative work when I teach, and so I do it on Zoom as well. Um, and I think it still works really well. And we've done even kind of rituals on the astral through guided meditation that have worked really well. Um, but at the same mm-hmm. time, it's it's a different dynamic of reading the energy. You know, there'll be times when you have a group yeah. of people and you're leading them into a place, and you can be like all right, now it feels like it's time to move on to the next thing. And it's hard to gauge that online, but I'm still doing it. Just a little, little you have to reach out a little further, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a different, it's definitely a different vibe. I, I guess yeah. for someone who likes to be surrounded by folks, I mean, I love being around people. And it's funny because I've learned thinking I'm an extrovert, finding out, oh, wow, peace and quiet is really kind of cool. So I think everybody's going in the opposite direction, which is right. weird because I'm I'm a very huggy person. I love seeing my friends. I love hugging everybody. I've missed the, the one thing I always get to every year is Mystic South, and that got canceled. But the the beauty of this has been the fact that I now can travel without leaving my house to get to classes, which I thought was fantastic. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can attend ritual in New York with somebody who's been (laughs) inviting me for, like, six years, but I don't live in New York anymore, and now I'm there virtually. And it's just wonderful. So, yeah, I'm kind of learning the actual opposite, that maybe I'm more introverted than I thought I was. It's so strange. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. Yeah, I'd say the the big lesson we've learned as a community is we've got so many people – who study with us at a distance and our, our original model and hope was like, Oh, eventually there'll be teachers everywhere and people can set up, you know, physical community if they want that. And um, realizing how much, cause we just ordained two ministers in Sweden and realizing that they've been able to participate a lot more in the main body because they can show up on zoom. And, you know, a lot of our California people we've got, we just ordained a teacher out there, but we don't have a group out there. So, you know, the yeah. few students we have on the West Coast can hang out with us and, on Zoom. So it's been it's been really good. And trying to figure out whenever we can go back to normal, whatever that is, um, how do we keep mm-hmm. that going and how do we make people still feel connected? Well, and I think that a lot of folks have realized the value of – I mean, and Zoom is exhausting because I think technology in and of itself is exhausting. Um, yes, I agree. <laughs> because – it takes – well, I don't think people realize that the emotional and energetic investment in doing something online is sometimes even more difficult for the reasons you mentioned earlier. You know, you're you're putting a lot into the same – I mean, you're trying to have basically the same experience as if you were in person. I, I liken it to an argument I once heard Meatloaf have with Melissa Etheridge and – she was like, oh, I'm all about the crowd and I'm all about the, the energy flowing back, you know, between us all. And Meatloaf's like, I don't care if it's 3,000 people or three trees, I'm giving the same damn performance. And I imagine right. <laughs> for our folks, it's the same thing. You want to give the same 
investment of yourself and, and the material, no matter how many people may be listening, you know, whether it's three students or 300 students. So, yeah, I mean, I can see where, you know, the medium is, is more draining. Um, so I give you a lot of credit because while there are some blessings to it, you know, having international folks and people across the country be able to attend, I don't know if folks realize how much energetically it takes to translate it. It's not quite the same, you know? Exactly. And it's tiring. Technology really wears me out. Have you been finding that? I I absolutely agree. Well, I mean, because you think of it for my, quote, day job of running the temple and our publishing company and just, like, clients and writing, I'm on the computer all day. And so when I would teach at night, I'd have, like, an hour or two drive to get to someplace and have dinner out someplace, maybe meet a friend in the area. Um, and then I have that social yeah. decompression time and then teach in front of people. But now it's like work on the computer all day, have dinner, work on the computer all night, teaching. And I had a, a lovely friend and meant really well. And she was just like, oh, we could do this every night. We could have a different ritual every night. We could have a different topic of discussion. And, and I'm like, yeah, I said, if I have the night off, I want the night off. Like, I know it's fun for people yeah. who don't do it for a job. And, I, and I, I love doing it. And I love my job. and I love teaching. But I couldn't do it seven days a week. Yeah. You know, I need that time off just like anybody else does. Yeah, I find it interesting when people think that, you know, teachers and, you know, folks involved in paganism or witchcraft as their full-time life, day job, night job, all the jobs, that that people actually need a break from that, too. I find that very interesting because folks are like, well, don't, you know, you're, you're doing this and you're doing this. Why don't you do this day, this day, and this day, too? And I'm like, because you're going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired and old. <laughs> and, that, you know, I always reiterate, I do love my job and I love what I'm doing, but I'm like, it's the blessing of the self-employed, you know? You only have to work half yeah. days and everyone hears that and they think, oh, that's so great. I'm like, yeah, so, you know, in your day, pick 12 hours and every day just work 12 hours, only half a day. Like, they're like, oh, I was like, yeah, to be self-employed, you're probably working more than your eight-hour shift, you know? Absolutely. I mean, ritual doesn't just come down from the sky. It has to be thought out. Classes have to be thought out. You have to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. You have to have a curriculum. I mean, this is not a joke. This is a real thing. And I think sometimes folks forget what goes into being a teacher, what goes into running a college, because it's it's really a college. I mean, this is not just a a once-in-a-while course you do on occasion. This is what you do. And I think folks really kind of need to understand that a little bit better because I think for most people, um, witchcraft is is kind of a a path, a secondary thing. It's it's easy when you don't have to actually put the work together. I mean, of course, you have to do the work when it's given to you. You know, when you go and seek it, you have to be willing to, to put into it, of course. But these things are created and lovingly called. I mean, it's not just, we're just going to throw this piece of information at you. You've got genuine curriculums that carry through a year. I mean, you know, please explain to folks what goes into that, you know, because I don't (laughs) know if folks understand we're we're in an interesting situation because of COVID right now. So I do, as you said, I run um, both in-person and online schools and have trained teachers to teach locally who are now teaching online in their areas because of COVID. Um, and I think because people have so much time on their hands, everyone's like, oh, an online, another online class, I'm going to sign up for it. And I think that's great. But at the same time, it's realizing that 
you know, it's, it's not just uh, show up and you, you graduate or show up at your leisure. When we run classes, we have some classes that are like that, that are just like, you know, here's the material, go at your own pace. And it's a Facebook group or, you know, something like that for discussion. But our degree classes that offer membership and, you know, uh, higher education opportunities, there's homework every month. And it has a set beginning date and you've got a due date for the homework and there's a set end date. And, you know, we have not quite semesters, but we do, you know, 13 months and then we take a couple months off and then we do another 13 months and we take a couple months off. So at any one time, we just finish stuff up in September and we'll start back up again in March. But at any one time, I've got five classes going um, that can be anywhere from 150 people to the smaller ones are around 30. And because of COVID, we had so many more people, usually registrations open for three or four months. And we just closed down the first degree after a month because we hit capacity. And I've gotten a lot of angry letters of people saying, you know, well, why did I get rejected? I'm like, well, your application had one word on it. Like it's a whole reporting, self-reporting class if you're not going to write something. You know, this is the medium by which Mm -hmm. we're doing it. And we accept people of all different education levels and backgrounds, but you got to write something. Um, and then people who missed yeah. the deadline, you know, people have been like, oh, well, I thought it would be open since the class doesn't start till March. I thought I had till March to do it. And I was like, no, we put an announcement out because we had so many people get your application in, you know, and, and people are like, well, why can't you just run another one? And I'm like, because I, I spend time and we have staff that spends time and everybody gets a mentor. And, you know, I can't have a thousand students because we don't have that type of support. You know, we, we do it to the capacity sure. of the level of support we have to make sure people can get a good education and get the support that they need. And, you know, but it's, it's interesting in the days of online stuff, a lot of people think it's almost like um, commerce and the customer is always right. And this kind of sense of the school should be what I want it to be. And I'm like, there's schools out there like that. And I think that's great, but that's not what I'm doing. So if you want what I'm doing, this is what we're doing, you know, and it does. I'm doing advanced classes now and, and, you know, I'm, I'm setting up nine months for next year of totally new classes. And so I've got to spend my, my winter break writing those up. Yeah. And I want people to understand that and hear that because, and there's no, and I am throwing absolutely no shade on anybody that does courses that folks can just sign on to, but not everything is the same. And I, I just right. wanted to show some appreciation for the fact that you are an actual teacher, an actual professor, and you are running <laughs> you. an actual school. Now, I, I just think folks tend to lump things in together um, when they have a certain idea of things in their mind, and I just want it understood that, you know, there are actual classes that you're – you wouldn't do this in a college that you would have attended a year ago. You have to show up. You right. have to do the work. There is a set time where it starts. There's a set time when it ends. Your assignments have to be turned in. You have to get graded, which is another part of what you do, I'm sure. Um, right. Yep, absolutely. You know, <laughs> so, I mean, there is – and there's no such thing as a teacher who's not working. You know, I used to hear about – because my father was very big into this idea that I would become a teacher. And what he kept missing was the fact that teachers don't stop working in the summer. They may not have to go to the physical building, but curriculums need to be built um, and things must be prepared for a whole new crop of students every time classes start. So I just wanted to really kind of make people more conscious of the fact that this is not just you're doing a series of classes come when you can. It doesn't really work that way in your right. situation. 
Yep, exactly. Now, and, mentioned... and we have some what I, I refer yeah. to as fun classes, but you know, these are these are the yeah. important ones. So yeah, it's actually exactly like you're talking. So thank you, I appreciate that. No, I, I I appreciate that you do it because it has to be a labor of love. Nobody is getting rich as a teacher. Um, Very you know, true. The <laughs> well, I mean, it's true. You know, you have staff. You have uh, materials that have to be handled and taken care of and, and organized, and it's not simple. It's, I don't envy teachers. I don't have the heart for it. Um, I wish I did. It's not a calling for everyone. So, you know, I'm very appreciative of all of our teachers. I think it's, you know, you're to be commended for your love for community to, to put it together, to make it happen. Um, thank you. So, yeah, thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. Um, but you had mentioned um, in passing, quite frankly, and I wanted to circle back to it, um, Copper Kettle and um, Copper you've got some stuff coming in. Oh, I'm sorry, Copper Cauldron. Sorry, don't kill me. I'm so bad okay. today. <laughs> no worries. You're so forgiving. Okay, so I have to come clean with the audience. I spelled Christopher's <laughs> last name wrong three times when I was creating the show, and he was so nice, and he's like, um, Raina? <laughs> I'm like, oh, God, I'm so embarrassed. So thank you for being so but, forgiving, but, but yes. But it, it, in a lovely moment of karma, I just got an email this morning from one of our ministers. I misspelled her name on our website. And, and you know, so I tried to be just as gracious and apologize in the way that you were. And, you know, so what comes around comes around. It can happen to anybody. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You're, you're, you know, and that's just something else I just wanted to say about you really quickly. And I know I'm coming across like a fangirl and I really don't care. Um, <laughs> you have to be one of the kindest sweetest people I have ever had the pleasure of speaking with and and your presence in the community is definitely a beacon for a lot of us and we just appreciate you so much I talk to you I talk about you with other folks a lot um, and you you're really important to us and and we thank you so much for your dedication thank you I appreciate that and I really feel like you know there's a time when I worked in a different industry where I probably was a little sharper and not as kind. And I feel like it doesn't hurt. It spends as much energy to be unkind as it is to be kind. So I feel like if there's a, a way to be gracious about things and helpful, then try to, you know, there's other times when you can't be that and you have to have a hard line, but if it's all in, all in yeah. good times, then I think it's much better to be that way. Yeah. I think people are more responsive when, you know, you show them that you, you don't have to be a hard ass every five minutes. And people accuse me of that all the time. They're like, she's got such a temper. Yeah, but I'm such a pussycat. Really? If you meet me, you'll know. (laughs) I don't know why they think I'm so horrible, but okay. So Copper Cauldron, what's coming out? What's happening? So um, after a little bit of a hiatus, so I took a break from doing some writing to actually help with Lori Cabot and some of her projects. So we ended up putting out yeah. um, Lori Cabot's Book of Shadows and her Book of Visions and her Book of Spells. Um, I am now back in the swing of doing things for me. So um, hopefully, I was hoping to have it out by Yule, but it might be out by January. I have a really weird and wonderful book I'm excited about called The Witch's Hut. And it's, um, it's not fiction, but it's not a how-to book like my usual books. It's more of I've been describing it like a parable. Um, and basically, oh. it's kind of a teaching story where people, um, the villagers have a route of bad luck, and they blame the local witch. 
and they end up on her doorstep basically wanting to do her harm. And this is her response to them. Um, and it's sort of teaching magical philosophy and self-responsibility and victimization and blame and, you know, all those kind of things that can apply whether you're a witch or not. But I think if you're a witch, you'll see our teachings in it. And if you're not a witch, I think you'd still get something out of it spiritually. Um, so I'm very excited about that. I did the interior artwork for it and even the cover art for it. Um, and so it's a, a little book of maybe 60, 80 pages. Um, but I'm hoping to have that out as kind of a special hardcover artistic edition. So that's the big news. Um, and then soon after that, we have a book on candles coming out. I have a, a series nice. of spell books I've been working on. So the first one was on writing spells. The second one is going to be on candle magic. And that hopefully will be out February, March time. Um, it's called The Lighting of Candles, and it, it's really going to be focused on all manner of candles, primarily from a witchcraft, Wiccan, pagan perspective. I know there's been a lot of stuff uh-huh. written um, much more from a kind of hoodoo perspective, which I love, and I definitely talk about how that influences. There's, you know, the back in the day when, you know, the one occult store served, you know, hoodoo and ceremonial magic and Wicca and even Satanism and and all that, and all a lot of things mm-hmm. kind of melded together. So I'll talk a lot about shaped candles and things, but primarily from my experience as a witch. Um, and then my last big thing for the end of the year, I have a book on um, the goddess in the cauldron is what we're calling it until it, it goes to print. But I think that'll be the final title. Um, and it's about the alchemy of all our cauldron myths. So it starts with Caradwin and Taliesin, and it looks into different forms of the Holy Grail and different images of the witch's cauldron. Um, but it really focuses on the image of the goddess, the divine feminine, as the initiator of the cauldron mm-hmm. mysteries. And part of it's alchemical, so it gets into making potions in the cauldron and, and using those potions in ritual. And other parts are more about visionary and mythology. But uh, I'm pretty excited about it. And wow. with the Gunderstup cauldron and looking at the different panels on the historic cauldron and what they mean. That's exciting. Yeah, so it's a busy year. So after having a couple of years and not a whole lot coming out on my own, you know, making up for it this year. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, that's great. And it sounds like you've got multiple things coming out within a relatively short amount of time. Yeah, yeah they're all fun. pretty much in the production stage now. And there's a couple other things that um, I don't have due dates for yet, but um, a couple of my older books from Llewellyn have gone out of print with Llewellyn. And so we're going to give them a bit mm-hmm. of a makeover and re-release them. So for people hunting for the Mystic Foundation, um, that's going to be coming out again through Copper Cauldron. Um, and Sons of the Goddess nice. is going to be coming out through Copper Cauldron as well. So I'm excited to get those back in print too. That must be great to be able to like have your own control over publishing. Is it very difficult? It is amazing. Is it very different? <laughs> Oh, it's very different, and it's difficult, and um, it's there's drawbacks and pluses to it. But um, I'm I'm going through and I'm talking with different projects with mainstream publishers right now, and, and although the projects are going well, it is really reiterated for me about how much I really love having the control and the final say, um, and not having to kind of spend a lot of energy on any type of creative conflict. So, I mean, it's Uh it's a problem because you're responsible for it from beginning to end. So, you know, the only deadlines you have are the deadlines you make, you know, Um, and you don't necessarily always have an outside opinion guiding you that might set you back. So you have to have people around you that you trust, but just the ability to not have to have a a difficult conversation about the cover or the name of the book or the direction that you want. Like, you know, um, I'd say, I guess it was maybe about 10 years ago was probably my last, you know, a Llewellyn book that I put out. And as much as I had a really good experience with it, and I'm very happy for those times, and I was treated very well for a long time, um, it was just that yeah. 
that sense of not having to write with the idea of trying to sell 10,000 books, you know, and really uh, with Copper Cauldron yeah. and the way that it's structured, I can pretty much make the same money selling a thousand books that I would make 10,000 books with them. And so now I can write wow. really niche, occult, esoteric things like, you know, Llewellyn and Wiser would never want to print The Witch's Hut. You know, they're not going to want a parable story. They're going to want a how-to book from me. So it's nice to have the freedom to put out things creatively. You know, I wanted to ask you really quickly about The Witch's Hut because, you know, I was listening to you describe what it's about. And I was wondering how much of that you took from, you know, just experiences that are actually happening in some of, you know, some of the more remote villages where um, people are being uh, ostracized and, and in some cases murdered because they're being accused of witchcraft. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think it's the story of our people that hasn't stopped. I think a lot of people think, oh, yeah, that doesn't happen yeah. anymore. But that still happens all across the world, just, you know, not necessarily in, in Western Europe or America, although, you know, there's still prejudice in America. Um, but I think, sure. you know, it's a, it's a tale that we're kind of told when we get into this, when we learn about the burning times and, you know, different characters and different views of, of how it can be. But I think it's something common to our heritage. So really kind of looking yeah. at it and making it be all of our stories. And then I think the, the conversational parts of it are the types of conversations you and I might have with people who are not practitioners. You know, when someone wants yeah. to know, well, why, why do you believe magic works? You know, here's the witch telling the villagers, this is, this is what it means to me. You know, why do you believe right. in the gods or what are the gods? This is what it means to me. Um, and her whole take is kind of like an old elder, you know, from the craft. And, and she basically says, I don't care what you believe, but you ask me, you know, why is this happening? I'm going to tell you why it's happening right. for me or what this means to me and take it or leave it. Right. Right. Oh, that sounds amazing. I can't wait to read it. That's great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah no, I mean, it's, it's very interesting because like you said, you know, and, and I know that this is what is expected from most uh, publishers of that vein, that they want, you know, tell people how to do X, Y, or Z as opposed to, something that's more of a a teachable moment without it being a written out spell and i i I appreciate things that run that way because i don't find that we have a lot of that yeah i i found so i won't say the breaking point for me but the point where it became clear for me um i was doing a book Mm -hmm. um but it was the witch's heart and the vast majority of it is a, it's a love spell, you know, love book. And so it's about meditations yeah. for love and spells for love. But I'm, I'm also like a minister and I do, you know, life. And so part of it was about divorce. Part of it was about pregnancy. Part of it was all the things that I counsel people and couples with, you know. Um, and the very yeah. last part of it was this really deep mystical view on love and relationship and how your lover mirrors the divine. And it was my favorite part of the book. And the kind of feedback I got from the marketing department was, oh, well, this is really kind of too out there. You know, this is really too esoteric. This doesn't really fit the book, which for me, it was my favorite part of the book. And I was like, oh, and I, yeah. I got what they said. And, I, you know, and it wasn't bad critique. It wasn't, you know, they weren't wrong for what we're saying, but it wasn't the book I wanted to write. You know, so I really fought right. to keep it in. I'm glad I did. But at the same time, you know, I would like to, to not have to have that fight and be able to kind of hold a vision and maybe have made a, a different book that was more about the mystical side of love, which, you know, who knows, maybe I will. Um, but that, that really proved to me, because I, I know what they're saying, you know, mass audiences are not going to want to look at, you know, they're, they're wanting it to be focused on spells to, you know, have love and have romance and have sex. And, and there's plenty of that in the book. But at the same time, you know, I wanted to look at the deeper implications and most people don't. So 
it's about cultivating that audience. And even if it's smaller press, it's still, it's still the audience I want, you know? That's wonderful. No, I think that's great. So I've got to ask you, and I'm not asking you to name any specific publisher, but have you ever (laughs) been in a situation? No, no, I'm just going to ask. Have you ever been in a situation where you were writing something, and this could be 15 years ago, this could have been 10 years, whenever. Um, Have you ever been in a situation where you were being pushed into something, you knew it was wrong, and you you wound up being 110% right? I I will say I've never put out anything that I didn't stand behind. There was nothing I was asked to write that I didn't want to write. Um, I'd say the biggest okay. thing that happened that I find interesting for that um, is that my only the two books I mentioned that went out of print that I'm going to put back into print. Yes. The only books I've had that have gone out of print have been the ones that the publisher came to me with the idea. Interesting. So like for Sons, for Sons of the Goddess, they, um, Llewellyn did an essay contest and I'm actually writing all about this in the, the revamped version of it. They did an essay contest for oh. teens. And it was, you know, after Teen Witch came out and it had, you know, its popularity and controversies to it. Um, and so yeah. they were floored that the vast majority of the essays that came in and they were going to put the essays in a book um, were from teen queer boys. Um, and they mm-hmm. were not expecting that. And then they sort of realized the whole difficulty of getting parental permission to print things for kids that were in the closet sexually and kids that were in the closet as witches. And, and so they kind of nixed yeah. that idea, but they realized there was this untapped area. And they were like, hey, Christopher would be great to write this book. Um, and I had a lot of fun with it, and I think it's a good book. But it's interesting that um, the ones that tend to, to be my worst sellers you know, commercially are the ones that they come to thinking is going to be a great commercial seller. Um, and then the yeah. books that I think, you know, that I'm like pitching, thinking they don't want, turn out to be the ones that are the big hits. You know, like interestingly enough, my first publisher was Wiser, um, and they turned down Inner Temple of Witchcraft, which is probably my most popular book. And they basically yeah, said have, they weren't sure for themselves. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, publishers don't always know. Sometimes it's about you know writing from your heart and writing what you want. And you know, so any aspiring authors out there that want to write, I always tell people write the book first. Write the book that you wished you had. You know, find the publisher. Uh-huh. I think these days a lot of the young authors, they get publishing contracts right away, which, I mean, is flattering and nice, yeah. and it's nice to have money up front. But I think then they're kind of at the whim of having to do a book by a certain time and having it like the the publisher more involved in the creative process, where I like to just have the book done. And if you don't like it, then I'll take it someplace else. But, you know, I, so yeah. I find that an interesting part of my career. So a couple of my books that have been my, my less sellers have been the ones that people, the publishers have been like, oh, you should do something like this. You know, and I I find it fascinating because I think, you know, being the people that are actually who the books are for, I would think that the publisher would understand that the writer knows what the writer is doing as far as the audience that they are going for. And I just, I find that with a lot of things, though, in a lot of different industries, the people on the ground tend to know what the customer is looking for. And I just find it interesting when you wind up having to do, well, in my case, having to do kind of what I'm being told until it doesn't work enough that they're like, all right, just do it the way you want to, Raina. And I do. And then it's fine. It's like, why are you not just listening to me when I'm telling you the first time? But folks are stubborn. What can I say? Um, I did want to ask you another question um, before we before we move on to, to something else that I wanted to talk with you about. Um, I wanted to ask you, because you do minister couples, 
Um, I was yep. wondering if you ever have had to minister couples that were, um, like, say, Christian and pagan. Not that often. Um, the more often that uh-huh. I get is someone who's pagan or witchcraft oriented and the other person's nothing or doesn't, uh, might have been raised Christian, but is not super devout. Yeah. I haven't got a lot yeah. of people that are um, like devout Christian with devout pagan. Um, so mostly uh-huh. it's been about like people who are a little bit more atheist and they're, they think their partner is a little crazy for believing any of this. And I usually do pretty well with them because I started this all as a skeptic. So, you know, I can start out the conversation with, I know this sounds crazy and I thought it was crazy too, but little did I know that, you know, I'd come across this and do you want to talk about, you know, philosophy? Do you want to talk about religious history? Do you like, what would make it not be crazy yeah. for you? Yeah, but right. I've, not, I've not come across oh. too many super Christians, so that's been easier for me. I, I feel bad for yeah. ministers that do. <laughs> well, yeah, I can only imagine. And I don't mean like uber Christian, like, you know, my partner's going to hell. I was just wondering if you have, and you did answer the question because you said you have folks who are basically not practicing anything and they just think, most things are crazy, so that must be right. an interesting sell. But I appreciate your 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 um, your starting point with it because I think it just makes the other person comfortable. But yeah. I, I often yeah. wonder the, how the these gr- relationships go. The greater issue I've had that has been really interesting and, and a little harder for me to counsel because it's not been my experience um, is with kids. So sometimes there'll be the issue of, you know, how do we raise the kids? Are we raising them with any type of religion? So if you have someone who's pagan or witchcraft and someone who's not, you know, do you raise them in kind of traditional American Christianity with Christmas and Easter? Or, you know, do you do Ostara and Yule? Or, you know, does it matter? And and it's been interesting because I've seen a lot of couples do either and both and none. Um, And I feel like the ones, the kids that have it worse are the ones that don't get any access to their parents religion you know like I think kids need something to at least more them you know so it's fine if you want to do Christmas annual but deciding well you know I've had a couple say well when they get old enough they can choose what they want so we're not really going to emphasize anything so they have Christmas like with toys and Santa but they don't really know anything more about that Um, so I think it's always better to give kids more options and experiences and I'm all for them figuring things out but I, I think it's good to give them something to be rooted in that's interesting because I originally started off with the idea that I wasn't going to raise them as anything, just as you said, and like have them make up their own minds. But I think that takes a lot of, I think that kind of robs them of, of a lot of enjoyment. Um, mm-hmm. I was raised I Christian. So, so I kind of was like, you know, if when they, and they've seen me do ritual since they were tiny. I mean, we used to pass the children around during circle. Um, so they were exposed really early on to everything. We had, you know, we had a Hanukkah, a menorah rather. We had a Christmas tree. We had, we talked about Yule. We talked about the Maypole. We, ta- I mean, we did everything. So they were exposed to everything. And, you know, I mean, my kids are like old adults, you know, not old, but they're like in their yeah. late 20s, early 30s. And now they're, they're still like, you know, there's elements of this and that that I liked and the other thing. And as they've gotten older, they're more interested in mom's faith. So, you know, they ask questions. One of them, both of them collect crystals now and they're into energy work. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, awesome. you don't want to call it. Yeah, right. You don't want to call that shit witchcraft, but let me just tell you what you're doing. Okay. So it's kind of a laugh around the house that, 
those who don't want to claim anything are actually doing what mom does, but shh, don't tell them. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of funny. Oh, my gosh. You know, and it's funny. I was talking to somebody this morning, and we were talking about respect, and we were talking about last night I was having a conversation about ancestor veneration and, you know, that you should go to your ancestors more often if, if you're someone who doesn't generally do that. And I have to admit, I don't generally do that because I don't have the greatest ancestors in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got to talking to about that last night. And then I started thinking, well, you know, this per- I, I revere this person as an elder in the community. And then I started thinking, well, what makes an elder? And then I was having a conversation with somebody else this morning about respect and, and being appreciative of your gifts without coming across like an asshole. Because sometimes our folks can <laughs> be a little bit assholish. It happens. That's true. Um, but I want, well, I mean, it's true in any, any situation. But I wanted, I wanted to get somebody else's idea. What actually is an elder? What does that actually mean? Well, in our community in the Temple of Witchcraft, we have kind of a division um, of the concept of elder. So we always try to be really careful at how we're using that. So there's elder yeah. in the sense of rite of passage, you know, and that's very chronological. And that may or may not have anything to do with your level of time as a practitioner. Um, you know, and so I don't want to say, you know, we have a, an elder in the community who calls it the hooray or old party. Uh, I think it's a little bit more than that, but I, I get what you're saying with it because, you know, it's the idea of marking a rite of passage in terms of time, in terms of life stages, yeah. and regardless of what your background was, I recognize you as an elder, you know, someone who's an elder can be someone who's elder to you in age, someone can be just an elder that they've passed a certain chronology, um, and we assume because of that life experience, they have a perspective and they have a wisdom, and then there's elder of tradition. Um, and I remember having this yeah. really interesting experience that I was... Um, I was glad it was about me, but it was interesting to watch it sort of from the outside because people were talking about me. Um, and I was at a <laughs> festival, and there was a gentleman who was much, much older than me. He was in, I think, his early 70s at that point. Um, and I didn't know him super well. Um, and there was another gentleman who's probably in his late 60s, early 70s, who I knew pretty well and was a friend of mine. Um, and the man that I didn't know as well had just come into Druidism and paganism in the last couple of years. So maybe he was practicing somewhat seriously for maybe two or three years. Um, and he really had this sense of, and it was a festival setting, so we're only all together for a week in, in kind of a special community. Um, and he was sort of giving us all this speech about, you know, demanding respect as an elder, not so much as a chronological elder, but as like, he should be running the ritual, or he should be doing this, or you should be asking him about this, or he'll do the divination of this. Um, and all of us who've been practicing for 15, 20 more years than that were like, oh, I don't know, you know, if he knows how to do that, or that doesn't seem right, or, you know, he, his basic magical theory doesn't make sense there. Um, and that kind of crux of, you know, do you speak up and correct this person who's a chronological elder? Um, and it was my other friend mm-hmm. who was the older gentleman um, who'd been a practitioner for, you know, almost all his life since he was early 20s. And he, he had to pull the guy aside and he goes, so, you know, if you'd like elders to be respected, you should basically shut up right now and listen to what Christopher mm-hmm. and somebody else in, in the group that was my age is saying, because by level of practice and level of time in the yeah. community, they're your elders. And he couldn't compute that. And I knew if it came from me, that would not go over well. <laughs> you know, so it's nice to have somebody that was also his chronological elder to be able to share that with him. You know, and, and so yeah. it's always kind of stuck in my head when I think about elders. I think a part of it is how much have you been practicing? 
what has been your dedication mm-hmm. to community. You know, someone who's a solitary practitioner for 30 years but has never talked to anybody, never done anything in community, it's hard mm-hmm. to say, hey, you're my elder. Um, and somebody who's been practicing for 15 yeah. years and has led stuff forever and has really taken the lead, you know, I might look at them and be like, oh, yeah, you're an elder. Um, I think sometimes it gets used to early. I, I had somebody who was in their mid-20s who was just like, oh, I'm an elder of this tradition. I'm like, even if you've been practicing for, you know, five, seven, ten years, I have a hard time thinking of you at 25 as an elder. But I'm not your initiator, so I'm not going to say anything or I'm not going to you know, correct any of that. But it's interesting titles and, and how people see things. So I tend to look at elders of tradition as people who've been practicing probably 20 years or more. Um, and that they're yeah. somehow involved or have responsibility in community and are willing to share it. Yeah, I, I find that the term does get overused, and it bothers me because age is and people because people seem to gravitate towards it being an age thing, and I'm like, no, no, honey. Yes, I've been practicing for f- over 40 years. The problem, however, is I'm not an elder of shit. I'm old. That's not the same thing. <laughs> and I, I just think people feel that there's a passage of time that instantly gives you a level of authority. And I will tell you that I have dealt with people who have been doing the exact same thing, who have not served community, doing, you know, like maybe ritual with two or three other people for the last 30, 40 years. And it's like, that's great. I'm glad you know what you're, because I'm just a bitch, and I know that. Um, <laughs> but it's like, yeah, you know what you're doing with your little group, but what are you doing outside of that? Are you are you helping anybody out? Are you, you know, learning anything? Are you getting more knowledge? Are you listening to other people who are teachers? And a lot of the time I get, well, you know, these young kids, and I'm like, well, what, what do you mean these young kids? <laughs> Blow your roll because these young kids, quote unquote, see the air quotes, um, they're doing more. They've written books. They're doing classes. They're, they're actually out there helping other people grow. And you're sitting there with your thumb up your ass with the same three people. Just saying, I don't see this as an elder (laughs) situation. And I think somebody thought they were giving me respect one day because they called me an elder. And I'm like, who are you talking to? I don't know shit. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no. That's why I have this show because I don't know a goddamn thing, and I admit it. So I'm like here yeah, to learn as much we, before I die. When we do our um, like our public rituals to recognize things for our rites of passage, our eldering rituals, yeah. we make really clear our chronology. So if you feel like you've yeah. come, you know, into cronehood or sagehood, or we probably have to come up with another word for people who, who don't identify either way or um, non-binary. Um, but that idea, if you, you identify and you want that life passage, you feel that's important to be marked. Um, our community is happy to do that. And we've done that for, you know, elders and, and people who I thought of as elders, both chronologically and tradition wise, and in terms of, of magical ability and awareness. Uh, but we always make clear that the public ceremony is of, of a rite of passage of time. Um, and we tend to think yeah. of most of our, our elders of tradition, I wouldn't even say elders, but it's a professional ministers of it are the ones who get ordained mm-hmm. you know so in our organization yeah. if you go far enough that you become a high priest or high priestess and you get ordained and you're doing that means you've done a lot of community work you know that confers yeah. a certain level of respect in the community but we don't use the term elder we'll just say ordained minister yeah i mean because people are like well you know you're such and such age and i'm like yeah you want to know my rite of passage menopause 
Get over it. <laughs> That's my rite of passage. Okay, and that was going to happen whether I asked you or not. You know what I mean? I just find people mm-hmm. really silly when it comes to certain, you know, rites of passage and titles. And I don't know why everybody feels like they could or should have a title. You know, it's right. like I've I've been a gardenerian. Since, I mean, I started learning to be a gardenerian at the age of 16. My mentor said, you have to really prove yourself. So I actually did not get my first initiation until I was 28 years old. Because like he's like, oh, no, 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 no. You don't just read some shit and I wave my magic tuck stick. You actually have to do some work. Yep. And I mean, it's very I actually old. love hearing that. It's old. <laughs> I mean, it's old-fashioned because people are like, yep. well, you know, I got my initiation in such and such months. I'm like, months? Was yep. a blowjob involved? I, I'm just asking. I mean, really. I, I have a great empathy so for quickly? that. People will say to me, because we have a five-degree system, and people will say to me, they're like, oh, well, you know, if I was studying, and they'll often use the Gardnerian idea and think three degrees means three years. They'll be like, oh, I could already be a no. high priestess right now. I said, well, you could in some tradition, in some groups, but I said, most people I know who, you know, go for gardenerian can take five to seven years before they even get their first, first degree. So if that's what you'd like to do, good luck, go out there for it. But, you know, that's why I have a particular program and criteria for it. But yeah, I was, I'm, I'm heartened to hear that because I, I'm very much of the old school. And I feel like if you're someone's not ready, you can't initiate them. Yeah, and, you know, and I, I'm very appreciative. Listen, I've heard all the stories of, well, I got it in this time, I got it in that time. And then it's like, what's wrong with you that it took you so fucking long? And I'm like, hey, what I was doing is not what typical everybody does. I wasn't given a series of books. I went to live with my mentor. And right. I was basically re-raised from, because I was in a very abusive situation as a child. He basically had to re-raise me from the ground up. So, yes, it took longer. And he wanted me to understand that this isn't something where it's insta-witch, you just add water. There's a lot that goes into it. There's a lot of responsibility that goes into it. You know, you are responsible to the earth. You are responsible to other people. You are responsible to your community. Um, so it, it was a real 12-year process. Nobody was just going to hand me anything. And I have no problem with how other folks do their thing. But for me, I'm old school because that's how I was raised. And there's, I don't think that should be denigrated. And Absolutely. sometimes I, I find folks Honestly, don't. when that's held, when that's held well, that's oh, so beautiful. Ahead. I think sometimes it's not held well. And it can be terrible, but yeah. when, when a high priest or high priestess can hold, particularly can recognize when you've come from a difficult or abusive background and not rush you through mm-hmm. the process and really take that time, I find that to be so beautiful. And you don't see that that often. I mean, I think that is very much the old school way. I think that was much more the way of my teacher's teachers, you know, so I think yeah. it's really wonderful to hear that because I don't, I don't think you, you see that too often these days. You really don't, and I and I'm sorry that that doesn't get to happen anymore, where you can actually travel, you know. And it's one of those old stories, like if you ever watch Kill Bill, she has to go and be with Pai Mei and and live with him to be trained <laughs> in the art and all of that. 
And it's kind of like that, where you go and you live with your mentor, and you are responsible day in and day out for what you are being taught. And, you know, you have to reflect it all back like it's your knowledge, not just something that was taught to you and you wrote it down and memorized it. It has to be ingrained in you. And I'm very lucky that that happened to me, and I'm sorry. Yeah, and I'm really sorry that that doesn't happen anymore. But I was wondering if that was perhaps a goal at some point for going back to more of the old school ways. Do you see any of that coming back into being? Well, that's a really great, interesting point. I think in my own personal vision and what I'm trying to do in our community and looking at the larger arc of the community outlasting my life and, you know, what are our goals as a a group consciousness that goes beyond any one Mm -hmm. person or personality. Um, I'm a big believer, and I know this is not the popular view these days, that witchcraft is rooted in the ancient pagan temple traditions. And that's hence the Mm -hmm. reason I use Temple of Witchcraft. Um, and I would love to sure. see, although I think people need to be integrated in life and hold down jobs and do all that, I would love to see us have the resources where both teachers and students could have dedicated spaces and dedicated support and dedicated land space um, to do things like, you know, Buddhist temples and Buddhist ash- and Hindu ashrams and things like that. I think, yeah. you know, the old gods were used to that to a certain extent, and I think then that went hidden and underground and resurrected and recreated in home temples, which I think is beautiful. Um, but I think now, yeah. uh, you know, it's that, that great balance between you want this to be accessible to the people who want it. So I created this school that has outside criteria. So it's not one person saying yay or nay. And this is the curriculum, like a, a like a college kind of hearkening back to the Druid colleges and the mystery schools, you know, and I think it'd be great mm-hmm. for us to have a campus where people could stay. And I think it'd be great for us to yeah. have more land spaces and retreat centers and things like that. So kind of my overarching goal and, and one of the, the huge goals of the temple that we've fulfilled somewhat um, was buying property and being able to earth the tradition yeah. in a place and have a, a business structure that allows you to, to hold and buy property and have it be tax exempt like every other religion and, and all that process. Um, we're in the midst of trying to raise money to build a community center and convert our barn into a larger community center. And then my grander vision would be that we would have that kind of college campus and we would have that kind of retreat space and, um, you know, have other properties across the country to be able to service those types of needs and to be able to honor the earth and the gods in that way. Um, so I do think it's kind of going back to that in different ways. You know, it's almost like the temple yeah. traditions devolved by the time we got to Christianity and we're outlawed and now we're slowly sort of regenerating back in an upswing. Well, I got to tell you my vision of it, my vision of it, because my big thing is there is, I don't know of any retirement homes specifically for witches or pagans. And I think if we could build centers with old folks, because old folks seem to know some shit that we could send (laughs) Our, our young folks to the old folks and say, here, as you're going to help them with their dinners or laundry or whatever, they can be teaching you some shit. Go do community service and learn at the same time. I think, I think that could be a really great thing to do. I, that's my dream. I would love to have enough money to start it. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I think old witches need a place to go when they when they do want to retire to be around like minded people. It's it's not right. so easy to find that for, for people who are my age and older. So And you've got to imagine thought. people who 
who are in like home healthcare type situations of having to explain their altar or having to explain a, a ritual blade out or something like that. And I'm sure healthcare workers yes. will be like, Oh, what's going on here? You know, to, to be in a place that is centered around that. So that's the norm and not weird. I think would be excellent too. Thank you for understanding that and not saying I'm crazy because sometimes when I talk yeah, about it, people think that's look beautiful. like I'm nuts. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's, I, I think, that. you know, there's, there's many different types of retirement communities out there. And I think our default mind is the, you know, these are the people of money who look like their retirement community is going to be about playing golf for the, the rest of their, you know, retirement and elderhood um, to those that don't have money that are kind of in squalor. I would really like us to take care of our elders. I think, you know, we have many plans in the temple and the overarching years of, of both um, holistic health kind of, I don't know if I'd call them hospitals, but the idea of, you know, there's Christian hospitals that are out there. How can we put our ethos back into medicine and taking care of people or hospice work or things like that? So um, I feel like yeah. my job in this lifetime is just to get this community center set and get it all paid for in my lifetime. And um, But I definitely have goals. I Honestly, one of the things that I want to do long-term plan that's going to sound crazy is I would like to create an intentional community, like in a village type of setup that is based on sacred yeah. geometry that does the seasonal yeah. festivals and pageants and parades that's not based on the witchcraft trials. That's not fusion. That's just based on us creating something and have people come to it like a tourist attraction to be able to see people living the life of the witch and have our shops and have yeah. our healing centers and have readers and things like that, but also have real people living in it, you know, tail holding down regular jobs. When do I move in? <laughs> I would love that. That's, that's, our, that's our third phase planning. <laughs> but yeah, hopefully, <laughs> you know, I mean, you never know with magic, you know, we, we've got certain realistic goals right now of what we can, we can earn for our fundraising, but you know, it always takes that, that one weird random magical act where someone's like, well, I've got a big amount of money. I want to invest in these things and boom, it happens. So I, I've not held out the hope that it won't happen in my lifetime, but you know, I have long-term plans and short-term plans. Well, now that you've mentioned fundraising, where can people donate? Where should they go? Um, if you go to templeofwitchcraft.org um, and click on the community and donate buttons, you can find out how to make a tax-exempt donation to us. Um, and we have lots of events, and we know sometimes people can't donate things. So if you come to one of our events, that's supporting the work. Um, if you want to donate something specific to our community center, you can just put a little note. If you do PayPal or something like that, you can say this is for the community center fund. Um, but, yeah, that's the best way you can find out about most of my community work is templeofwitchcraft.org from our classes and events and rituals to our greater projects that we're doing. Um, and people looking for stuff just about me and my books and my writing, it would be ChristopherPenzak.com. You are so wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. But you, you are. And, and I just I, – I just, want to give you a little bit more appreciation for all of the work that you do and for really living what you preach. Oh, I have somebody to yell at me for saying the word preach. Let me back away from preach. <laughs> um, you, listen, people are very picky when it comes to words these days, so I have to mind myself very carefully. That, that Thank you for true. living I, I totally what you to preach. That. Yeah, Thank I you. mean, Thank and I was, words, I was told by my editor I can't use the word pet. Did you know that? Pet can what? offend people. Yeah, I didn't know that. And I mean, yeah. I, I get pets are animal companions, so I said something, you know, along those lines. But yeah, I was told that you can't say pet because that's offensive to the pets. And I'm like, well, I'm, I love my pets. Like that's not, yeah. So it's interesting how words have changed over time. <laughs> you know, people people's wow. understandings of what will get them upset or not. Yeah. 
I'm I'm a little bit curious as to who took a survey of animal companions to find out their feelings. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, maybe the funny part is, is I, it, it must be a thing because if it got to the point where an editor of mine was telling me that, I, you know, did, did it be easier if we used a different word than pet? I was like, all right, this must be a thing. I'm a little concerned with how the most innocuous things have become so completely problematic. I, maybe it's yeah. my age. Listen, I'm almost, I'm almost 60, so maybe I'm just old and not getting it. But, I mean, I understand. Listen, if someone tells me their pronouns, I honor that because that's who you are. Yep. But when you're going to tell me something unprovable, like your pet is offended because you said it was a pet, um, I'm going to be asking you for some evidence on this. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's a I, I, difference. You know, and I'm always one to look for malice. And if there's not malice in the intent, I can, you know, I don't, I don't get upset by it. You know, if there's malice in the intent of somebody saying something. So as long as I'm not saying the word pet with malice, I think I'm okay. I think you're fine. I think some <laughs> people need to get the stick out of their asses, but that's me. You know, uh, uh, call hmm. me curmudgeonly. I don't care. Um, anyway, <laughs> Christopher Penzak, I adore you. You are definitely one of the things that makes paganism beautiful and lovely and and you make witchcraft real for people in ways that other people can't. I mean, you're just, you're fantastic. I am a huge fan. I think the world of you. And I can't thank you enough for spending this hour with me. It's like almost gone. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me on. I've had a really great time and I really appreciate all that you do. Well, I appreciate you, and uh, I am going to rebook you for next year because you've got things coming out, and I want to talk to you about got them. things coming out. <laughs> Absolutely. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. All right, Christopher, thank you again. Have a great afternoon. You too. Blessed be. Be well. Blessed be. All right, everybody, I will be back on Friday with Eva Dominguez, Jr. I am so excited. Uh, so please join me then. Have a blessed week. And I will talk to you all later. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.